That was choir-tastic. Thank you, choir. That was beautiful. Do you appreciate our choir? Me too. I also should say in this time of like shifting around as I take a tour of this part of the platform, oh, it's nice. Um, one person I appreciate, especially this week and in the, the weeks and months leading up to this family camp week is Kevin Harbin. Kevin and Ellen are wonderful. Um, and I was, I was just saying to Kevin how uh, I don't envy his role because my job is really easy. I, I talk for longer, but, but Kevin has to maintain basically a three-ring circus in his mind always of all the different camp things and all the variables and, and the timeliness of things. And I just I appreciate people who can do that, and it's not an easy job. So I know that you are grateful for them, and uh, I'm grateful for them as well. So thank you. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you, Alan. Thank you both. Um, Let's go to Romans 5. We'll start there tonight. My text number is up on, the, up on the screen. You're welcome to text me at any time during the message. I, I really do like that. I also like getting texts uh, throughout the, throughout the uh, day. I got one from somebody. I'm just going to kind of paraphrase it. They said, um, hey, today at work, I tried to be like Jesus. This was in response to yesterday's message. I tried to be like Jesus at work today, and I found that I was doing stuff for other workers that I haven't done in a long time. Jesus took control of the fear in me. I had a great day serving him and his people. That's good. So let's just talk about this. Like, that is one person who took one step closer in spiritual formation, which is becoming more like Jesus. So there is among us at least one brother who has done something out of the ordinary, took a step that he wouldn't have normally taken, got outside of his comfort zone, and now he's more like Jesus. And what is it that made it possible for him to become more like Jesus? It was that he made himself available to the Lord in that moment, and he saw an opportunity, and he said, I can do what Jesus would do in this moment if he were here in my shoes. That's really all it means to be like Jesus. And so our role, our task as his followers is to become more like this Messiah Christ to do what he would do if he had our jobs, if he had our relationships, if he lived in our neighborhoods, if he worked where we worked, if he had the family connections that we have, you name it. We are to do what, what Jesus would do. If Jesus had run of our Facebook account or Twitter account, we would do as Jesus would do. We would pick our battles as Jesus would pick his battles. We, we would step in with truth but also stay back with grace. You know what I'm saying? How many of you find that that's very easy? Me neither. And it seems like the relationships that you're in only make it more difficult. You know, we talked yesterday about how um, I will often say to young married couples, like, it's okay if you fight or get into disagreements or whatever, especially if you fight about where the bread should go, which it, everyone knows it goes in the fridge. Everyone knows that. Um, but, and, I, and I said, if a married couple tells you they don't fight, they're either not telling you the truth or someone's bending over backwards. Now, I know that occasionally there is a, a couple where there's just no fights, but I've, you know, it, it happens. It just does. And the reason I tell a young couple that is so that they're not completely discouraged when they do get into a disagreement. Because you realize that a year into a marriage, a young couple will come to me from time to time and they'll say, we just can't stop disagreeing and I'm afraid we're going to get a divorce. Especially if the husband or the wife, if one of them come from a broken family. They see divorce as the, this is what's going to happen, because this is what happened to my mom and dad 22 years ago or whatever. 
So a, a young couple needs to hear that it's okay. It's all right if you have disagreements. You're in the furnace of, of connection. You're, there's sparks flying. You're becoming more like Jesus with each other, and, and neither of you are perfect, and all those things rise to the surface in the context of marriage. During the message last night after I said that, one person texted me, and they said, um, me and my, my partner never fight. But then right away somebody else texted me and said, that's so good to hear because we fight more than we should. And I thought, it'd be so funny, this is just in my head. I pretended that was from the same couple. <laughs> that was like, just in my head, that was the inside joke that was running. Someone asks a very logical question. If the bread goes in the refrigerator, why doesn't the grocery store keep it in the refrigerator? Do not tell my wife that we had this conversation. It does work out well at our house. I talked to you guys a little bit about Lexi. It always feels like dropping a bomb on a room when I talk about her, and I always feel kind of worn out afterwards, but I, I tell that story trusting that God will use it. I think he did. I hope he is. I've had really meaningful, deep conversations with people that I probably wouldn't have otherwise, so thanks for, thanks for letting me share that with you yesterday, and thanks for your prayers, and thanks for your support, and thanks for your understanding. I appreciate it so much. I want you to know that I miss my little girl quite a bit right now because... Though she has the mind of a two-year-old, she is doing all kinds of things that they, they said she would never do. Though she is essentially nonverbal, she will help me around the kitchen. Like I'll say, Lexi, can you help? And she'll help, right? And so, so she'll be with me as, a, as we're making a sandwich, and, and we'll get the bread out of the fridge, and we'll get the peanut butter, and we'll get the honey. Do you guys like peanut butter and honey sandwiches? I love a PB&H. I love it, especially when the H, which stands for honey, um, gets into the bread and makes it honeycomb-like. I just love that when it's slightly crunchy. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Now we're having church. So, so I would make these sandwiches for Lexi, and, and she just came to love these things, right? And so now I'll say, Lexi, can you help me make a sandwich? And she'll go, yeah. I mean, she doesn't say yeah, but she's like, sure. And she'll go, and she will get the bread out of the refrigerator, and she will go and get the peanut butter, and she will get the honey, and she will open the silverware drawer, and she will know the difference between fork, spoon, and knife, and she'll get the knife, and she'll bring it over. I say, now what do I do? And she'll take the knife, and she'll tap, tap, tap on the top of the Jif jar, and I'll take the Jif thing off, and I'll take the peanut butter and scoop it out. Now what do I do? And she'll help me spread it on the bread, and she'll help me with the honey, and then she'll look at me after she did it, and she'll go... Because she's showing me I did really good, right? You're supposed to clap for me. Like an applause light in a studio audience. She shows us when to celebrate her. And then I'll say, can you put this stuff away? Can you put all these things away? And she'll go put it away and shut the cupboard. It's amazing. These are the small miracles that we celebrate in our lives. And I just want to tell you, I haven't helped Lexi make a sandwich in a couple of days, and I'm kind of experiencing withdrawal. It's really weird. So after the service, could we meet in the kitchen? <laughs> I say all that to get us into Romans 5. Are you open to Romans 5? All right, this is Paul writing, and he gives a therefore, and the therefore is there because he talks about the promise of faith, which is ultimately fulfilled in our Lord Jesus Christ, delivered to death for our sins and raised to life for our justification. So he says in Romans 5, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, which means essentially that we are made right with God, since we have been justified through faith, our faith in Christ and his good work, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. And we all say, amen? Amen. Now watch what Paul does. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, 
and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who, he, who has been given to us. So Paul is all about celebrating the work of Christ in his justifying us before the Lord. Paul is all about, about celebrating the peace that we have through our Lord Jesus Christ with God. That the sin that separated me and God is now addressed, taken care of, paid for. That that bridge that was broken is now complete again. That, that I am one with the Father again only because my brother Jesus is one with the Father and I have faith in what Jesus has done. That's the good news of the gospel. And what I find bothers more and more Christians in these days is a, is a very fair question, and it's why is it that if I'm following Jesus and I'm doing everything he wants me to do, and I'm living a faithful life, and I'm doing my devotions, and I'm tithing, and I'm going to church, and I'm going to Bayshore. That was awesome, by the way. <laughs> anyway, why is it that if I do all these great things that make me a top-notch Christian, why am I still suffering? Have you ever wondered, now just be really honest. Be, I mean, just, can we just be honest? We've been together long enough. We know each other well enough. Let's be honest. Do you ever wonder why God allows suffering? A couple of you do. Okay, so for the rest of you who haven't figured out, just hang tight. We've got to work through something. No, seriously, do you ever wonder why God allows suffering? Anybody? Do you really? I wonder every stinking day. I wonder why God allows certain bad things to happen. I also have to wonder, though, if I'm going to ask that question, why does God allow good things to happen? Because if we're going to blame him for the bad stuff, who do we thank for the good stuff? If we're going to say, I had a really bad day, why did the Lord allow this to happen? We forget the other 364 days in that year where everything was great. Who do we thank for that? It's really easy to think that God has abandoned us, rejected us, left us to be forgotten, simply left us out of his mind, out of his heart. Maybe he's mad at us. Maybe he's Maybe he's frustrated with us. Maybe he's just trying to, and he'll just kind of say, oh, forget, I'm going to go over here now and work with these people that I like better. And you see how you get along without me. It's really easy to think that that's what God does. He does not do that. What Paul is doing for us is the same thing that the Old Testament prophets do for us. I'm, I'm thinking of Jeremiah, but also Job and Isaiah and others who experience suffering, great suffering. I also think of those Christians in Hebrews 11 that experienced great persecution, who risked and lost their lives for the sake of the gospel. What the scripture does for us tonight is it gives us context for our suffering. It doesn't say that we will not suffer. It doesn't say that we will never, ever, ever experience something terrible once we follow Jesus. And I have to make the disclaimer, once you follow Jesus, your life will not get easier. In fact, it will, it will become more difficult. And the reason for that is because you've surrendered your will. You're no longer calling the shots. You're no longer Lord. He is, and he's going to call you to go places and do things you wouldn't do otherwise. And you will find that in following Jesus, that it is not a rosy and easy path, though it is a clear path, and though it is the only path to God, it is not a simple path. Because the way of Jesus is the way of suffering. Consider Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He brings his closest followers into the garden. He says, I want you guys to come with me. We've got to go pray. We've got to go seek the Father, and I don't want to do this alone. So he brings his disciples. He says, let's go to the garden and pray. And he goes into this Garden of Gethsemane, and he kneels, and he says to his guys, we all got to pray, and don't you guys fall into temptation. Don't go falling asleep on me. I need you right now. And he prays. And do you remember the prayer of Jesus in that garden? God, thank you for this day. Uh, just bless it. No. 
What's he doing? What's he doing? He's pouring his heart out. And what does he request of the Father? He requests only the impossible request. He says, Father, if it is possible, could you take this cup from me? Yet not my will, but yours be done. He has, in essence, in that moment of suffering, and it says in the Gospels that Jesus is under so much duress and so much pain and so much weight that he's sweating drops of blood. And he says, Father, if it is possible, would you take this cup from me? You know what Jesus is doing? He's being honest before his dad. And he's asking his dad if his dad would do something that he knows his dad cannot and will not do because that's not the plan. But isn't it fascinating that Jesus doesn't get a free pass on suffering? Because if that was my son, I would do everything I could to, to make it so that he avoids pain. When Malachi was first born, he had to get x-rays just to look at something in his neck and his head. And uh, we'd already been through all kinds of medical rigmarole with Lexi. And so in one sense, we were used to it. But in, the other, in another sense, we were like, oh, great, now what's going to happen? Now what are we going to find out? Well, everything turned out fine. But the hardest thing that I had to do as a dad was wrap up our 18-month um, son, Malachi, lay him on an x-ray table in, like, the papoose. He's screaming at the top of his lungs. And the only memory he has is of his father standing behind a piece of glass saying, it's okay, son, it's all right, it's okay. This is the only memory he would have if he could remember this, and I hope he can't. Now, from his perspective, everything is falling apart. And the worst of it is the one guy whose job it is to take care of him and keep him safe has left him on this table, or in the, on this cold steel table where this gun thing with a light is pointed at him, and he can't move his arms and his legs, and he can't get free. And this is merely for diagnostic information. I'll never forget the sound of his cries in that moment. When Jesus is on the cross and he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I would like to think that that cry broke the Father's heart in a way that you and I could never imagine. What it must have been like to know that your son is going to go and suffer like this. Why doesn't God give him a free pass? Why doesn't God let him do what he's going to do, and at least throw some Novocaine in the mix, or at least give him some general anesthetic so it doesn't hurt too much so he can sleep through it. Why? Because God calls his son to be fully present in the suffering. God calls his son to be fully present in the suffering. In our world today, we are looking for more and more ways to become absent to the suffering. We've come to terms with the fact that we're going to suffer in this world. But the last thing I want to do is feel it. And so we self-medicate. And we dip our toe in this self-medication and that. It's alcohol. It's, it's gambling. It's pornography. It's, I mean, you name it. It's something that we go to to be okay and what we're designed to do in those moments is go to the Father, even if we do as Jesus did and say, God, you've got to take this away from me. And then follow it up with, not my will, but yours be done. And so Jesus models suffering. The Old Testament prophets know suffering and suffering before Yahweh. And then Paul comes along. And don't forget, Paul was always getting 
into some kind of trouble. It means one, one writer called him the glass jaw of the New Testament. He was just getting beat and knocked and persecuted left and right. And Paul comes along and gives us some sort of a context for our suffering today. And he says, we glory in our sufferings, which is not what I usually do. I minimalize them and I try to ignore them. Paul says we glory in them because we know that suffering produces what? Perseverance. The kid from Spring Arbor that ran a 5K in nine minutes, did you, did you, was it 17 minutes? It doesn't matter. It might as well be nine minutes. Did you know that we have a transporter here at Bayshore that moved him? That's amazing. He knows perseverance. And then when he was getting an award, he comes running up the aisle. Did you see that? It was, it was great. He's got perseverance. Why? Probably because he runs every day. Every stinking day he's out there running. And every day he runs, he probably hates it. Then the endorphins kick in, and he likes it. And then the next day he goes, oh, man, that hurt my knees, whatever. Maybe he's not old enough for that, but I am. I have the knees of an 80-year-old, right? And so he gets up the next day, and he runs again, and he runs again, and he runs again. Why? Why does he go and suffer? Because suffering produces perseverance. That the thing that we're asking God to take away because we're too weak is the thing that he's using to make us stronger. Have you lifted weights before? The easiest weight to lift is a one-pounder. Why can't you stop at a one-pound weight? Nothing will grow. Nothing will develop. Then you get to 10 pounds and 20 pounds and 50 pounds and 100 pounds, and you need more and more resistance so that you can keep growing. This is perseverance. This is perseverance. And this is character. Character is who you are. Character is the person you truly and ultimately are. Behind all the facade, behind all the roles you play, behind all the, all the identities that you take on throughout the day and in your life. Character is truly who you are. It's the way that people would describe you at the end of the day, especially behind your back and when you're not around. How would they really describe Adam? And then the development of our character, which is ultimately to become more like who? More like Jesus, right? As we become more like Jesus, all of a sudden, this character development in us is not merely for our benefit, but it gives us something that we didn't have before, and it's hope. It's the ability to believe that somehow this is all going to work out. You know, I still ask God to take away the suffering. Nonetheless, nonetheless, I anticipate that in this suffering I will get stronger and my character will develop. And in the end, I will have what the world does not have and it's hope. So let me ask you this question. Get your phones ready. What are you afraid of? Because one of the big things that came in in our first night was a question about suffering. When will the suffering go away? When can I be set free from fear? How could I possibly know God's peace? So I would like to know, what are you afraid of? Now, I'll just get the ball rolling with something really innocuous. I'm deathly afraid of snakes. Amen. Yeah. Now, when I was a kid, I had snakes. I had a pet snake, and I'd walk around the neighborhood with a snake around my hands, like, oh, look at this. It's so cool. And then as I grew up, as I understood Genesis 3, I started to hate snakes more and more. And so I do not like snakes. Anything that looks even snakish, all these cables up here, every once in a while I have to be like, no, Adam, that's a wire. It's okay, you know. Um, I hate snakes. So what are you afraid of? Anybody afraid of spiders? Anybody afraid of heights? Even with harnesses, are you afraid of heights? All right, here we go. We've pulled the room. Um, lots of food observations. Okay, good. My dad called. That's good. Um, all right. I'm not afraid. Someone says, I'm afraid of not pleasing God. 
I'm afraid of failure. Wow, a lot of fear of failure. I'm afraid of being abandoned and alone. Again, I'm afraid of failure. I'm afraid of not doing what God is calling me to do. I'm afraid of losing my family. Again, I'm afraid of failing. I'm afraid of falling down the stairs. I'm afraid of never being good enough. I'm afraid of rats. I'm afraid of living with debilitating health problems. I'm afraid of wasps was stung over 200 times in one moment or over life. Goo, wowzers, I'd be afraid too. I'm afraid of not being able to fix it when my children suffer. Anybody? Mm -hmm. I'm afraid of trying things and failing at them. I'm afraid of my husband dying and being alone. I'm afraid of heights and closed spaces. I'm afraid of something happening to my kids. I'm afraid of losing my children. I'm, being afraid, I'm afraid of being left out of something or missing an opportunity. I'm afraid of the unknown. I'm afraid of something happening to the ones I love. I'm afraid of being on a ship. I'm afraid, I hate to think that some of my friends and family haven't accepted Jesus and won't go to heaven. I'm afraid that what God told me would happen won't happen. I'm afraid of not being accepted. I'm afraid of never being happy with the way my life is. I'm afraid of making a mistake while performing. The choir sounded great, don't worry. I'm afraid of being forced to choose between my life and a loved one's life. I'm afraid of failing as a parent. I'm afraid of not being perceived as intelligent. I'm afraid of being diagnosed with dementia. I'm afraid of being alone at the end of my life. I don't know if this is serious, but I'm going to give it some credibility. I'm afraid of cotton balls. It's possible. Okay, all right. I'm afraid of tornadoes and missing God's call. Yep. I'm afraid of my children not knowing the Lord. I'm afraid that my son will never come back to Christ. I'm afraid of being a failure. I'm afraid um, of quitting my job to follow the call of Christ. I'm afraid of pastors. Can I just say, I don't know if you're serious or not, pastors are kind of weird. All right? No, no, not. It's true. It's true. You have to be weird to do this. Like, I'm enjoying this right now. Did you know that more people are afraid of speaking in public than they are afraid of death? That the number one fear is speaking in public and the number two fear is death, which means at your funeral, you would rather be in the casket than giving the eulogy. <laughs> which one do you want to do? I'm going to lay down. That's fine. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So if I had to do an Insta-poll trend on that, I would say that there's a lot of fear of failure tonight, just in the room. And that may not be you, and, that, and that's okay. So maybe if that's not you, maybe if you're extraordinarily confident, perhaps this would be helpful for you to hear because that means that you're probably sitting around a brother or sister who is afraid of failure, and the Scripture calls us to encourage one another. All right? So let's talk about failure. Failure is what happens when I don't live up to the expectation I have for myself. Failure is what happens when I said that I would do something, I believed I would do something, I knew I was supposed to do, do something, and for whatever reason, I wasn't able to pull it off. Let's talk about the disciples for a minute. Let's talk about the apostle Peter. Peter's a disciple, comes up to Jesus. Jesus says to Peter, I'm going to call you Rock. You're Petros, Simon Peter. I'm going to build my church on you on this. Peter's like, Awesome. Later on, Jesus says to Peter, you're going to fail me. It's basically what he says to his disciples. He said, he said uh, you're all going to fall away. You're all going to bail on me in the last minute. Peter vehemently denies his ability to fail. Not me, Jesus. Absolutely not me. We are BFFs to the end. That will never happen. I will never, ever, ever fail you. To which Jesus says, 
you will. And he was right. Peter failed Jesus. Jesus is out in a boat after his resurrection. And he's shouting to the guys. No, he's on a beach, and the guys are in the boat. The guys are in the boat, he's on the beach. He says, hey, have you caught any fish? And the disciples say, no. And he says, throw the net to the other side. And they're like, okay, they pull in a bunch of fish. All of a sudden, Peter remembers or realizes who it is. He says, that's the Lord. Peter puts on his bathing suit, jumps in, swims to Jesus, gets out of the water. He's sopping wet, dripping head to toe. So now consider his failures. He bailed on Jesus after he said he wouldn't, and now he looks like a sloppy, wet mess. I mean, it's the most humiliating thing before Jesus, right? And Jesus cooks them breakfast. That's what Jesus does in response to Peter's failure. Hey, come have some fish, you guys. And as they're sitting around having fish, Jesus says to Peter, hey, Peter, do you love me? Well, yeah. Do you love me? Yes. Peter, do you love me? Ah, yes, you know that I love you. Peter's a hero of the faith, man. He's a total failure. All of the disciples are failures. We will all fail at some point. Sometimes our fear of failure is predicated upon our belief that we are strong enough in ourselves to pull it off. We are not. Sometimes our fear of failure is built on the, on, the, on the image that we've cast for ourselves that we are strong, independent, capable people. I will never let you down. You can always rely on me. And we're afraid that the facade will come off and people will realize how much of a mess we are and that we'll fail, that we'll crumple. What we're really afraid of is the embarrassment of failure. And here's Jesus, and he comes calling people, and he says, yeah, I'm, I'm looking for failures. Anybody? Anybody? And we come to him not in our strength, but in our failure. In fact, I would submit to you that one of the things that holds us back from a deeper relationship with Christ is that we will not bring him even our failures. Because if I bring him my failures, I will be acknowledging that I'm a weak person. Because what I want is a little bit of Jesus to help me with the plan I have. And what he wants is everything, including the failures. Turn with me to Hebrews 12. If we could agree, I think we could agree that sin is failure. Do you agree with that? Would we say that sin is, is failure? I'm not saying that all failure is sin. I'm saying that, that if we sin, we have essentially failed something, right? We have failed God's glorious standard. Can we agree on that? Listen, the morning session with Hebrews, everybody talks back. Tonight you're quiet. Just humor me, all right? Talk back to me, okay? Will you? Oh, that's, that's a little better. Okay. It's way more fun that way. Hebrews 12. The writer writes, whoever they may be, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on who? Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. What if my fear of failure is me losing heart? Because if I'm focusing on the possibility of failure, guess what I'm not looking at anymore? I'm not looking at Jesus. It's really difficult to have our eyes fixed on Jesus and also be considering our chances for failure. Remember our guy Peter? We were just talking about Peter a moment ago. Jesus is walking on the water. What does Jesus say to Peter? Come on out. Jesus comes out on, or Peter comes out on the water with Jesus. When does Peter start to sink? 
when he takes his eyes off Jesus and looks at the situation, and we would call it coming to grips with reality, that's when he fails. The, the, the failure, bless you, the, the, the reality that he's come to terms with is the fact that he could blow it. I'm going to look bad in front of the guys if these waves take me over. Mm-mm. We must fix our eyes on Jesus. Read it again, Hebrews 12. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He scorned its shame, that suffering, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now let's consider Jesus, him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that what? so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. We have so much to be afraid of in this world. It seems like the news today, tell him I said, is that, I hope that's not like an emergency. That would be the worst, right? If it, anyway, the news today is basically a list of things to worry about. Have you noticed this? You go online to see what's going on and what I should be worried about. Therapists are noting that more and more people are coming in for sessions and basically talking about a general anxiety that's based on politics, that's based on what's happening in our world politically. One of the reasons that we are so overwhelmed with failure is because of this, or overwhelmed with with worry and anxiety is because of this. Do you know what this is? (laughs) This is a receipt for 15 items that we got from uh, Dollar General. Look at all this information. Look at all of this. Look at this. I'm, I am inundated. I could win a $100 gift card. I can get five bucks off in August. I'm not coming back next week to do the five bucks off. I can get Dish, get Dish TV. I can go to the general store. And then there's a Gatorade thing. There's so much information here. We are drowning in information. We're overwhelmed with stuff. We're overwhelmed with options. Our phones carry for us basically any and all the information we, should, we could possibly want and need in a moment. We are inundated with stuff. And then we get into places even like, like church, and we start to compare our situation with theirs. And we start to look at how we're doing compared to how they're doing. We start to compare how their family is, is safe and secure and sound, and ours is kind of falling apart here and there. And we start to worry about failure. We start to worry about what could happen. And then if you're a, a risk analysis kind of person, you start to put a lot of weight into the 1% chance. You know, there's a slight chance this could happen. And we put all of our worry into that. And we try to medicate it. We try to get information and we try to get control of this stuff. And here's Jesus. I think in so many, in so many times when we're just absolutely worried, I really think that Jesus in his peace and in his calm and his serenity is merely sort of kind of sitting and waiting for us to just notice him. And he watches us march back and forth like chickens with our head cut off. And all he's waiting for is a moment where we will turn our attention to him. Rarely does he grab a hold of us by the collar and say, look, I'm right here. I'm right here. Many times, though, he'll watch us run around in our anxiety and our fear, and he will eventually say to us, like he does me, Adam, what are you so worried about, man? Do you really think that you're the Lord? Somebody says, I'm afraid of leaving my wife with nothing. I'm afraid of, again, being a failure with God. So what would failure with God look like? Tell me about failure with God. What would it be to fail the Lord? 
Okay, so what I'm seeing here is that failure with the Lord is to not do what you feel he's calling you to do. I think I would agree, but I'll, I would also remind you that it's not too late. So perhaps in this room tonight, could it possibly be that God is calling you to take some kind of next step? I don't know what it is. I'm not the Holy Spirit. But could it be that in this room tonight, God is calling you, not the people around you, not them, talking to you. Could it be that God is calling you to take a next step? And all he's waiting for is that moment when you will let go of control, where you will say, suffering produces perseverance, character, and hope. That moment when you will cast off anything and everything that's holding you back and just waiting for you to lock eyes with him. And when you do that, perhaps you will have the breakthrough that you're afraid of missing out on. The greatest irony of tonight's session would be if a bunch of people in this room said that they were afraid of failing the Lord by not being obedient and then didn't take the opportunity to be obedient to the Lord. Wouldn't that be the worst? So our worship team is going to come, and this is what we're going to do now. We're just going to take time before the Lord in worship. This isn't like a one song and we're done kind of thing. We're going to dwell. We're going to soak. We're going to selah. We're going to spend intentional time in God's presence. And we're going to take whatever it is that you're talking with me about, whether it's suffering, a lack of peace, fear of the future, fear of failure, fear about your kids, fear about your jobs, even a phobia that's crushing, whatever it is that's got a hold of you, I want to remind you that Jesus is inviting you tonight to let go. Now, before I do this, let's talk about the altar for a second. At my church, there's a stigma about the altar, and the stigma is... I only go to the altar if something is wrong. Have you ever heard that one before? And that stigma is carried through when someone goes to the altar and people around us think, oh, I wonder if something's wrong. <laughs> I remember when I was a kid and we, we went to church and my Uncle Frank was up front praying at the altar. And for whatever reason in that moment, I noticed that my Uncle Frank had a hearing aid. And I remember asking my mom, Uncle Frank must be really worried. What, what, I bet he was praying about his hearing aid, wasn't he? And my mom was like, no, no, he's just seeking the Lord. But I automatically assumed, this is as a child, I was able to sort of codify this and say, Uncle Frank's up there praying about this, I just know it. Can we just not do that tonight? A couple people have said to me, you know, Adam, when you do an altar call, I feel guilty because nothing's wrong. No, no, I'm not, no, there's no guilt. This isn't a guilt thing. I feel guilty for not going. No, 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 no. This altar is just another method, another way of just coming before the Lord and taking a different posture. And in our church and maybe your church, I mean, we don't do an altar call every week or all the time, but we're at Bayshore, man. We're growing in the Lord. People have found Jesus here. This is a holy ground. This is a holy place. And here we are carrying all these burdens. I know you are because you just told me about them. What if tonight is the night where we just surrender everything to him? And it's not the kind of thing where, hey, dude, I, Adam, I'm good. I don't, nothing's wrong. No, no, don't, don't worry about that. If he's calling you to come and talk with him here, go ahead. And we will do nothing but celebrate your obedience and trust in seeking the Lord. Okay? Can we agree on that? Is that can those be our ground rules? So I'm going to pray up here, and I would invite you to come and join me. And I'm going to tell you what I'm going to be praying about is all the stuff on my mind and heart right now, the stuff that I worry about, the stuff that I can't let go of, the anxieties that I can't leave behind, the things that are going on back home, the things that are going on in church, the things that are going on in my extended family, because I believe Jesus is inviting us to simply surrender. 
and that he watches us waste our time and our energy carrying burdens that are too great for us but are nothing for him. And yet in his respect for us, he lets us make the choice as to when we will let go. And in his love and grace for us, he invites us in this moment to do just that. Would you come when you are ready? And let's just seek the Lord in prayer.